Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 287 being recorded on Thursday, February 17th, 2022. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Jason, we're about 300 episodes into what I would like to call our podcasting journey. And sometimes our timing has been terrible over that 300 episodes. Sometimes we roll the dice and uh, it comes up the right way. Uh, Tonight's episode is probably the best timing episode we've ever had. Uh, I mentioned this because yesterday Shopify announced their Q4 earnings that were were pretty strong, but then they dropped a bit of a bombshell on Wall Street. They announced that they're going to spend over a billion dollars on the next three years on what they call SFN, Shopify Fulfillment Network, and they're going to compete with Amazon's FBA capabilities. Um, and they also kind of said, and we're going to, to um, essentially get to two-day delivery across 90% of the United States. Um, you and I were skeptical about that on, on social media. I said, that's nice, but Amazon has spent over $80 billion to get there. And then you said... Yeah, that they're also targeting a service level that's kind of antiquated. Like, like two-day is Amazon 2010. Um, here in 2022... You know, it's it's at, at worst next day and increasingly it's same day for millions of SKUs. So I, I, I was a little surprised that they their big splash was that they were going to invest a billion dollars to get Amazon service level from 10 years ago. Yeah. And that's where our timing gets interesting, because you and I have long wanted to do an Amazon logistics fulfillment deep dive. And the person that knows more about this than anyone except for the folks inside of Amazon is Mark Wolfrat. He is the president of MWPVL, and we are really excited to have him on the show to talk about all things logistics. Well, thank you kindly for having us, Scott. Jason, really appreciate it. Looking forward to this. Oh my gosh, uh, Mark, we're th- we're thrilled to have you. Uh, Scott's too shy to mention it, but but uh, this is a rare circumstance where Scott is a fanboy of you because um, uh, <laughs> every time there's there's new data about Amazon's investment in in uh, their their various elements of the uh, fulfillment network, um, he's forwarding stuff to me and he's like, hey, did you see what Mark uncovered this week? So uh, I'm probably not going to be able to get a word in edgewise. Uh, but before Scott jumps in uh, with the questions, we do always like to get. Uh, a brief background of our, our guests. And I, I'm super curious to understand how, how you got into the supply chain space and, and sort of what led you to uh, uh, found uh, uh, MWPVL. Well, gosh, well, uh, you know, I was a mathematician in my uh, university days and uh, I just accidentally got a job as a consultant, uh, you know, when I got out of school and it was, we didn't know what the word supply chain was back then. It just didn't exist. So I, I started out consulting and distribution and then eventually went out and founded my own company. And, uh, you know, today we call it supply chain. So for 35 years, I've been doing what they call supply chain logistics consulting all over the world. And it's been a blast. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Very cool. And uh, does, 
I think of you as publishing all this Amazon specific data. Um, I, I assume that there's a, um, a, a non philanthropic commercial aspect to, to MB, uh, MWPVL. Um, are you selling consulting services to people that are trying to solve supply chain problems to analysts? Like what, uh, can you tell us a little, like what's, what's the elevator pitch for your firm? You know, the, the, the whole thing about Amazon that we do is really for intellectual curiosity. Yeah, there's a little bit of money there, but it doesn't, it doesn't um, pay the bills, so to speak. You know, really, we work for other retailers that compete against Amazon. And about 15 years ago, when Amazon was becoming a household name, I realized that they were very secretive about everything going on around them. They didn't talk much about how they went to market. And as a supply chain practitioner, I said, well, gee, wouldn't it be interesting to start diving into this? And, and I hunkered down in my basement and started to, you know, research the company. And and, and over the last 15 years, lo and behold, we put together, uh, you know, we put our elbow grease in, we've put our 10,000 hours into this. We've got a, a huge database on every building they operate globally. We monitor the people that work in those buildings. We have engineered uh, the economics underneath the hood, so to speak, the productivity rates, the unit volumes, the package volumes, et cetera. And that's enabled us to understand the unit economics for their e-commerce operation, including things like what has automation done for them. And that enables us to be more powerful as a consultant when we go to market for the rest of the, the industry. And, and they greatly appreciate the abilities that we have in terms of being, you know, conversant on areas like strategy, which is a big part of what we do. So I'll stop there. Yeah, very cool. So, um, yeah, I mean, if, if uh, you got to study the best to figure out how to, to you know, scale up other, other folks. Um, so we definitely want to jump into this. I kind of defer to you on the best way to explain to listeners the shape of the Amazon infrastructure from, from where I sit, you've got kind of the core is the fulfillment centers and these, they're these giant multi-million square foot buildings that house and ship product. Um, then there's sortation centers, delivery stations, and then they've built this kind of airplane network across that. How would you, if you were at a, if you were going to just, and our listeners are pretty savvy on this. So, so how would you describe kind of the, the, the core infrastructure that Amazon has right now? Well, I think you just um, mentioned, you know, the core of it. The, I think a lot of folks don't realize that even before the fulfillment center gets the inventory, there's an important component to their supply chain, which is called the inbound receiving center. And the inbound receiving center is a holding tank for inventory. It is not meant to serve the public. It's meant to, re to replenish inventory at the fulfillment centers. So typically what happens is when imported merchandise hits the port, it's brought from there into uh, one of these inbound receiving centers. It stays there until it's needed at the fulfillment center. And that doesn't just apply to imports. There's quite a bit of domestic merchandise that follows that logic as well. Mm -hmm. So instead of ramming the fulfillment centers with inventory like Christmas wrapping paper, it'll arrive in, say, the month of June or July. Instead of overstuffing and bloating the fulfillment centers, they'll hold it in these inventory tanks at the ports. And then when that Christmas wrapping paper is needed at the fulfillment centers, 
they'll start shipping that, say, closer to November, December. So that's really the first component of the supply chain. And all of the major retailers like Walmart, Target, Home Depot, they all do something similar. They just call it an import distribution center. Uh, the fulfillment centers come in various flavors. Um, the one that I think most of us recognize is the small sortable fulfillment center where the goods are small enough to fit inside one of those yellow totes that can ride the conveyor system and go from picking to packing. There are large non-sortable fulfillment centers, and they are usually a million square feet, and they contain all the product that's too big to fit in those yellow totes. And anything from an umbrella to a gas barbecue to an appliance, that kind of thing. Then you have specialty fulfillment centers that handle merchandise categories that are unique for a reason that perhaps they need some type of material handling, um, you know, requirement that is different. Or, for example, apparel or footwear or jewelry and even things like car parts or textbooks. And then from there, you have uh, after the fulfillment center. I mean, think of the fulfillment center as being a place where inventory is kept and where orders are picked, packed and put into the shipping carton. From there, the typical shipping carton will now flow to a sortation center, which is a primary sort. Those buildings typically handle a 200-mile radius. They get The packages get sorted by zip code, palletized, and then trucked to the nearest delivery station for that zip code if it's an Amazon logistics delivery. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it'll go to a post office, a USPS post office that handles that zip code. And that's typically the packages that are, are destined for the rural, low-population density areas. Areas where you have high population density, like urban, suburban areas, Amazon has built out their delivery station network so that they can deliver those packages themselves and have better speed, more control, and, you know, um, shall we say, uh, the capacity, guaranteed capacity to handle their, their package volume that's consistently growing. And then, of course, there's UPS. UPS picks up at the fulfillment center, so they don't go to the sortation center. They pick up directly at the fulfillment center and they handle all of the packages that are what I call out of region. You know, think of a customer that might live in Montana where Amazon has no infrastructure. UPS would be delivering packages to Montana because Amazon doesn't have any sortation centers or delivery stations out there. So that's kind of the three flow paths. Now there's also air freight. And to that extent, Amazon currently leverages 43 airports around the country. The packages that are going air freight are typically items that are picked in a fulfillment center for a customer that's Amazon Prime that lives very far away from where that item was picked. Ideally, in a perfect world, you'd never have air freight because every fulfillment center would stock every item and everybody would live close to a fulfillment center. So you wouldn't need to do this because air freight in general costs seven times more than ground freight. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to do air freight unless you have to, but it's an important part of Amazon's competitive positioning because if you're going to offer coast-to-coast two-day service level for Amazon Prime, then you need air freight. You can't get from Seattle to New York using ground freight. That would be five days. So that's an important component. It's a very expensive component of what they do. So packages will go fulfillment center to the air hub. Air hub from there, planes will typically fly to a regional airport hub like Dallas or uh, Hebron, Kentucky, where their brand new airport hub has been opened up last year. 
And then from there, the plans will take the packages to their respective regions. And then from there to the delivery stations that end up delivering to the customer. So those are the, I would say, the main components of the supply chain. I haven't talked about everything, but that's the main gist of it. Very cool. And then uh, so so when it goes to air, it's kind of a bug, right? Because, you know, when it should have. So Jason orders an Xbox and it's not near him in Chicago and it has to go out west or east and then fly it to him to. And since he's in the center of the country, that may be a bad example. But let's say there's someone on the West Coast. They order an Xbox. It's not in stock and they have to ship it from the East Coast. And well, does the network get smart? So do they have the software that would then say, all right, we've flown six of these across the country. We need to kind of rebalance and get a lot of those closer to the West Coast. Is, is that kind of how it works? Yeah, I think you're you're exactly right. There's artificial intelligence. You know, where do you stock an item becomes a pretty important aspect of their business. So I don't want to put windshield wiper blades that are for the winter in Miami in the fulfillment center there, right? I'd, I'd rather have that up in Detroit or Chicago. So having the smarts to know if you're going to have 15 million items in a fulfillment center, you know, you want to have the smarts to position the right 15 million items in each one of those small sortable fulfillment centers. And similarly, if there's called 360 million items on the Amazon marketplace that are being sold, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to put 360 million items in every building. So you have to have the smarts to be able to say, if I see something moving frequently um, and it's going long distance, how can I fix that problem? and save money and, you know, increase uh, quality of service by having it either stock in more places or stock in different places. So that's all part of the artificial intelligence behind the scenes that is, is part of the Amazon secret sauce. Yeah. Um, let's put some numbers on this. So, so we've got inbound. How many of those do you think are just kind of roughly are there in the system? The inbound receiving centers? Mm-hmm. Uh, we count 29 right now within the U S and there's about 11 more on the way. Could you be more specific? Oh, sorry. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's what I I love. That's what I love about your data. It's like down to the, like, you know, decimal points of square footage. Um, so you're, how about fulfillment centers? Just all, all flavors, I guess. In the U S there's, uh, all told fulfillment centers add up to roughly about uh, 287. 87. Yeah. Now, Jason, for the longest time, didn't Walmart have like eight? Isn't, am I remembering that right? Yeah. Yeah. But eight, eight, eight to 10 for a long time. Yep. Yeah. And I'm sure they've increased that, but still they don't, they don't have 287 all hazard, I guess. <laughs> no, they're in the thirties roughly. In but the 30s. what Walmart's been doing is they've been retrofitting. Mm-hmm. many of their existing facilities to play a partial role for e-commerce. I think that's why it's it's tricky to count because they have pretty robust store infrastructure, uh, infrastructure for distributing the stores and increasingly uh, they're, they're repurposing a portion of those. Yeah. yeah. And then how about sortation centers? That's a little tricky because some of them are attached to fulfillment centers, right? Or do you, do you keep track? Oh, of we track those. We track those. Those are clean. Uh, they've got 96 active. Uh, sortation centers, that's an area of the business that's really grown in the last 12 months. Yeah. And then 22 on the way under construction. Hmm. Wow. That is big. So that's like a 20% growth. And then how about uh, delivery stations? So two flavors of the delivery station. One is the small package delivery station. 
which is what most of us can think, you know, think of when we get an Amazon box. And then there's also the heavy bulky where, you know, they have a box truck with a, a licensed truck driver, maybe two people are needed to unload the couch or whatever it is, you, whatever it is that's big and heavy that you ordered. And so it's 515 delivery stations active and 113 of the heavy bulky ones. And we're aware of another roughly about 161 buildings that are uh, in the works right now. Yeah. And now that's, that's probably the newest part of this, right? Because they used to, from sortation, they would dump it mostly before they had the DSP program, they would dump all that into USPS, FedEx and UPS. And then, that delivery station is that last mile where they've built. And if you're saying there's 515 plus 113 plus one, so there's like 700 or 800 of these, those are mostly in like the last five years. Is that, is that your record? Well, around 2014, they got started on the first couple and it was still going for the first few years, but this is the part of the business that skyrocketed, you know, for yeah. the last three, four years, they've been building these out, not only in the cities. What's interesting is last year they opened up 30 of these, in the tiniest of towns, mm-hmm. you know, population 5,000 kind of thing. Yeah. And so it, it seems to me they're trying to get, and they call this the wagon wheel. They're trying to get into the rural areas to do this work as well, which tells me, and you know, that last 15% of the population where it's really tiny towns, mm-hmm. that's the most expensive part of the country to get to, you know, lowest population density, widest geography. So it's the most expensive last mile delivery you can possibly make. But the fact that they're starting out with this lab test to say, hey, let's try these 30 out tells me that their goal is to have every one of these zip codes uh, under their control, including all of the rural ones. So this is an interesting story that's unfolded. Yeah. And then the thing that's kind of, uh, you know, if you're UPS, what's tricky about this is you were in FedEx, you were delivering all this stuff for them. And then I imagine, you know, the Amazon robot in the sky, the AI basically said, that's a profitable route for us. We'll take that over. This is a prop. I can just kind of like picture them like snipping the tree and then adding these delivery stations and just slowly but surely, you know, and then conversely, someone on the FedEx UPS side watching that, all that margin go away. Is that kind of how you envision they, they rolled this out? Frankly, I think it's a lot simpler than the AI in the sky. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I think it's just sort the U.S. population in descending sequence, right? Yeah. Okay. And start out with New York, LA, Chicago, and so on, and yeah. work your way down the list until you've conquered all the big cities, and then keep going down from there. And that's it's not that, as ominous as an AI in the sky, though. Yeah, it, it sounds better, <laughs> but <laughs> that's really the way it works. Is they and if, and same thing for the fulfillment center build out. You know, right now they're targeting towns in that four to 500,000 population range, like Green Bay, Wisconsin, and that kind of thing. And, you know, the, that's on the list of, of places they're going. And it's because they've already done the ones that are six, 700,000. Yeah. Let's, um, so two of my favorite areas of the infrastructure to kind of poke around in is the fulfillment centers. And, you know, so I think the average in your data is something like 800,000 to a million. And maybe that's, Maybe that's the small sortables, but you know, it's hard for people to imagine a building like that until you're inside of one. And, you know, the one way I've helped people to try and understand it is it's like 22 to 30 Walmarts just kind of stacked in, you know, the cubic volume of that many Walmarts, you, you get inside of one of these things and you can't really see the, you might as well be on the moon because you can't really see the horizon per se, because it's just like, 
it's so stacked with stuff. You don't really know where you are in the, if you aren't familiar with it, you're not really, you know, sure where you are. Um, how do they, and then Amazon is pretty unique in the ones that aren't robotic with how they put product up, um, is my understanding. What, what system do they use for that? Or do you, do you know? So you're talking score? about the, like the how? large non-sortable facilities where they are more manual or, or yeah. Yeah. Where they're more manual. Yeah. That is actually the equipment being used for that is nothing special. That's pretty commonplace. Yeah. It, it's called an order picker truck and mm-hmm. an order picker truck is a, uh, a vehicle that runs on a wire guidance that's buried in the floor so that it doesn't go left or right. It stays true to the wire. And an operator goes up with the unit load rather than staying at ground level and raising a pallet. The operator rises to the full height of the 40-foot building, takes the box off the pallet, and then inserts it into the location in the rack. So it's called a man-up system. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. fairly common in, in you know, most walks of life. That's not something unique to Amazon. Yeah. And then don't they do it where the stuff they put on the shelves is by shelf height? They found it was kind of randomly placed on shelves by They use random storage. That's right. And um, I think when you're trying to manage, you know, one of those large non-sortable buildings could easily have 2 million items. Mm -hmm. And one of the small sortable performance centers could easily have 15 million items. And when I say items, I don't mean units of inventory. I mean unique SKU variety. And, you know, when you're dealing with that, assortment uh, that's that's also coming and going you know it's not like there's one new item a day or or, or a week it's like there's thousands of new items every single day hitting you it would be an exercise of futility to try to organize it all in some meaningful way so that the fastest moving items are positioned strategically in the building and so forth that's the way most warehouses try to operate where they now, if this is an item that generates um, a lot of excitement, let's put it in, a, in an efficient place. In the world of Amazon, especially in the world where robots are retrieving the product and bringing the product to the picker, it doesn't really make sense to do that. So they use random storage, and it works well for them. Yeah. Um, and then, so they acquired Kiva, and that's been quite a while now. Where where are they on the Kiva robot system as it relates to fulfillment centers? I have to tell you a true story here. I was at a trade show when they bought Kiva, and I had just done a huge interview and a big article on Kiva with the the prior owners. And I said to them, you know, this is a great system, but it would never work for Amazon. (laughs) And they said, they they called me and they said, hey, could you strike that from the article, please? I have no (laughs) clue. The next day they announced that they were acquired by Amazon. And I thought, what a what a boy Amazon overspent. They spent seven hundred and fifty million. I said that we were all laughing at the trade show how much money Amazon spent on Kiva. You know, we thought they were fools. And well, were we wrong? Why was I wrong? You know, I've never been so wrong in my whole life. That that's been a huge win for Amazon. And to my knowledge, there's about three hundred and fifty thousand of these Roomba style robots running around out there across the world, and. We've done the reverse engineering on their labor crewing. We've put a lot of manpower in to try to figure out what would it, what would their world look like today if they hadn't have done this, if they were continuing to operate with push carts, people walking 12 miles a day to pick these orders, that kind of thing. And the math we keep coming up with is, you know, to push out 5 million units a week out of a small sortable fulfillment center, you need about 3,000 people. If it's got robotics, same building, no robotics, 
you need about 4,800 people. Hmm. So the cost per unit, when you look at all the labor costs in, in the manual building, it's about 95 cents a unit. In the automated building, it's about 60 cents a unit. So it's it's been about a 37% labor reduction, labor cost reduction for them. Now, Amazon doesn't like talking about that. Mm-hmm. They like to say, well, actually, in our automated buildings, we sometimes have more people than in our manual buildings. But what they don't mention is that they're pushing out way more volume with those extra people that they've got in that building. So they're, they're, at the end of the day, you can't look at it that way. You have to look at it as you if know. the volume was constant, how many people would I need manual versus automated? And in, in our opinion, they're saving about 37% of their of the labor requirements by putting this automation in. And that's why they've been rolling this out in every single building that they've put up in the U.S. and, and, in, and in the developed world um, because of the huge labor cost savings. Very cool. I had not heard that stat. Um, the uh, so then the other one I think is really interesting is these delivery stations and um, you know in some of the materials you have you, you have a kind of a really cool picture for how this is maybe maybe try to walk people through kind of like how this is set up and and what it does in you know on a day to day basis. Yeah, I think there's a misconception sometimes that a delivery station in the media they sometimes call them delivery stations, fulfillment centers, and they get it mixed up. Delivery station is purely a secondary sortation center. This, the first sort took place back at the sortation center where all the packages for a 200-mile region were organized by zip code. And then for a specific area within that 200-mile region that's very, very tight, call it a, an area where the driver can leave the delivery station and go no further than 60 minutes of drive time to get to the market that he's making deliveries to. That small 60-minute circle is what's being serviced by the delivery station, and there could be many of those circles within the region that the sortation center serves. So this is the secondary sort. When all those packages arrive at the delivery station, they get unloaded to a conveyor system, and people sort those packages out to um, a route. And a route is quite simply a grouping of streets that are close together in a neighborhood so that a driver who goes into that neighborhood will be as efficient as possible when making that last mile delivery. And a delivery station, you know, in the old days, they used to put them so that the vans would drive through the building and the loading process would take place in the building. And that is still done in Northern climates like Chicago, like where I live. Um, because you can't effectively load a van out when it's snowing outside and so forth. But a lot of the newer ones that they've got, you could easily have you know, anywhere from 250 to 750 vans pulling up to the side of the building underneath an extended canopy outside. And they're getting loaded out very much in military discipline style. So you'll have a platoon of 72 vans pulling up. And 20 minutes later, they've got all their packages for their routes and they're leaving. And the next platoon of 72 is pulling in. 20 minutes later, they're gone, the next platoon and so on. And over the course of two and a half hours, three hours, you know, Amazon's loaded out upwards of five, 600 vans and they're out there on the streets doing these deliveries. And it's not unusual for a van to go out on a quiet day with upwards of 175 packages or more. Uh, on a busy day with upwards of 250 packages or more. 
And these drivers are going over a 10 hour day. And, and when you do the math on the time it takes for them between deliveries, some of these guys are averaging three minutes per delivery, which is astounding because these numbers, um, no one else is hitting them. This is unique to Amazon. They've got enough density and demand for their product and, and their service that they can go out there and every three minutes make a package delivery. It's, it's a, it's incredible how much volume they've got. We think that in the U.S. last year in 2021, they came close to six billion packages um, delivered through the Amazon Logistics delivery station network, which is incredible because when you look at that volume and you compare it to say UPS or FedEx, um, UPS is a is a 120 year old, 100 sorry 114 year old business, and they're achieving about that same volume as we speak. So. They've been able to build since 2014 a company, a transportation company that they run themselves that is basically doing the same volume as 114-year-old UPS. So I find that, and that's over and above everything else they've done, by the way. So this is just a history in the making. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. When they when they go to fill one of the vans, is it pre-packaged like on a pallet and they just lift a pallet in there? Or no, like no. a swarm of people are dumping packages in there? No, actually, it's it's pretty smart what they do. They they each time a a package is removed from the conveyor belt on the inbound, it's being scanned into a canvas bag, and the canvas bag think of it as kind of like a hockey bag almost, where you're putting a group of boxes that logically should be together because they're close in terms of proximity as to where they need to be delivered. So they not just throw all 225 packages on into the back of the van loosely. They organize it by these bags. And the operator who, the driver who has to make these deliveries is told what bag to go to in order to retrieve a specific uh, parcel that has to be delivered. So it takes a problem of, say, 250 boxes and breaks it down into smaller subsets to make it faster for the driver to, uh, to find the actual package. Hmm. So then how many canvas bags are on, is it like 25 or something? Like 10 per uh, canvas you know, bag I don't know. Like that. That's a good question that I've yeah. been able to figure out. Ah, I stumped you. You stumped me. <laughs> <laughs> it took a while. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just fascinating to watch these delivery. And then the other thing that Amazon does is, so they'll have one of these delivery stations and let's say, you know, to your point, they'll maybe hundreds of vans, maybe up to a thousand vans that, that service one of these. And then there's different DSPs running these things and they put them in competition with each other over routes. Um, maybe say a little bit more about that. I don't think a lot of people realize that's going on. So maybe, maybe explain how that works. Yeah. So, you know, when you, when you look at UPS, you look at FedEx and the other large carriers out there, they all have employees. They sometimes have to deal with unions. Transportation is a heavily unionized sector of the economy. So how do you build a transportation business that's non-union? How do you build a transportation business where no one has the ability to organize and come after you and go on strike and start causing problems for your business? And how do you keep costs down? Well, Amazon, everything everything you really have to respect about this company is they've done it differently. And I got thousands of stories that I can talk to that, you know, will describe how they just don't think the same as the rest of the world. They say they don't allow themselves to be stumped by existing paradigms. So what they said was, let us go out 
and help entrepreneurs get started. We'll help them get the vans. We'll help them finance the whole process of getting into business. And they'll go out and hire the employees who will do the deliveries. So that creates an arm's length agreement between the driver and Amazon. It doesn't become their HR problem. It becomes the HR problem, the DSP. And let's make sure that every one of these delivery stations is not being serviced by one DSP. No, no, no. We have to have that with three, five, six, sometimes nine DSPs. Why? Because DSP number one starts rattling his saber that he's not making enough money or he doesn't provide adequate service or something bad happens with one of the drivers or, you know, you can think of a litany of other reasons you fire them and you bring in another DSP to replace them. So they're all powerless, and they're all captive to Amazon. So it kind of reminds me of the old Amway days when, you know, if you went off and sold Amway product at, mm-hmm. and they raised prices on you, you were captive, right? What, what could you do about it? Nothing. In this case, Amazon controls everything. These DSPs cannot go do deliveries for other people. They're captive to Amazon. Amazon owns that capacity, and the DSPs have to deal with all the well, churn and burn that goes on with the high turnover labor environment that they're dealing with. And they've got to perform because Amazon is monitoring them every step of the way. There's cameras on these vehicles. They can tell whether or not the vehicle is doing what it's supposed to be doing and if the driver is doing something wrong. And they have to perform. And if they don't perform, then they're let go. So it's a way of keeping this massive network of thousands and thousands of drivers um, without the ability to organize and form a union, without the ability to gain any power, and yet they can guarantee the capacity will be there for them when they need it. So it's brilliant. It's a stroke of genius. Mm-hmm. And they're not franchise, right? They're they're ten ninety nine. So they're kind of like how FedEx set up ground is. My understanding is that is that, that there 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 are people that oftentimes used to work for Amazon in the warehouse, mm-hmm. and then they took hold of this opportunity and said, hey, why not give this a try? And they became entrepreneurs. And now these business people um, are out there having to manage sometimes 30, 40, 50 drivers or more. Uh, and every day they're under pressure to get this job done. So, you know, I, I think uh, at the end of the day, kudos to Amazon for figuring out how to do this and not be saddled with labor costs that are twice as high, right? Some of these drivers can earn, you know, 20 to $25 an hour. Um, you start looking at the wage rates fully loaded that a FedEx or a UPS driver is making. And oftentimes those, those folks are out there making $70,000 a year to drive a vehicle, the more senior drivers when it's full, when you consider their benefits. So that's what happens when you have employees and, you know, you you treat them right and you have benefits and everything else. Amazon has gone the low cost way to do B2C and keep their costs down. We think the average delivery is coming in somewhere around $1.75. And that's pretty hard to match, you know, when you wow. start looking at the others. Yeah, what what would you say FedEx and UPS are at? It's hard to say what the cost structure is, but if you you know you all you have to do is go there and say, hey, I want you to ship this package and it's, you know, going to be six, seven dollars. And a portion of that six, seven dollars goes towards the last mile delivery function, but a pretty big portion. 
so, Mark, I talk to a lot of people that have kind of a, a simple model uh, in their mind of how this works that like, you know, gosh, Amazon puts one of everything in a, a huge fulfillment center and puts the fulfillment centers close to people. But I, I think the the problem Amazon solves is even much more complicated than most people realize. Did I hear you right? A, a, a big Amazon fulfillment center holds about 15 million SKUs. Is that order of magnitude, right? That's, that's not a bad number. Yeah. And then how many SKUs do you think Amazon sells? I, I I have seen a number of numbers. I thought I heard you say 360 million, but I've seen some estimates that are even quite a bit north of that. And to confess, I only know what I read as far as that goes. So the number that I saw last was somewhere around 360 million or so. Okay. So let's even- That's uh, prime eligible, I think. I think that's prime eligible and then non-prime eligible adds another 300 million. Okay. Got yeah, it. I think that, I think that's that would, where the bigger number is, Jason. That would totally make sense. So to kind of frame this, it's it's not like you place an order and everything can get shipped from the fulfillment center that's closest to you, right? Like the the, the you know they're they're strategically staging different long tail inventory all over this network, and then you know uh, impressively maintaining this high level high service level even when that product isn't close, and that's where a lot of those like air exceptions that that you and scott talked about in the beginning come in right is right that obscure halloween costume you're buying for your daughter right that is only stocked in the seattle fulfillment center and you're in new york and you want it in two days so that's an example of something that would go by plane if you're amazon prime yeah um and uh the um you you mentioned uh, so one one funny thing. So I live in a multi unit apartment building, a, a twelve unit condo building, and I like to think of us as an Amazon uh, laboratory because we're we're in Chicago. Chicago has every kind of uh, uh, fulfillment infrastructure here, um, and and our our twelve units get about fifty Amazon parcels a day, um, and it. Every single day in our mailroom, there are Amazon labeled boxes delivered by the postal carrier. There are Tons of Amazon boxes delivered by uh, Amazon, you know, dressed DSPs, and their their Amazon boxes delivered by UPS. Is is in your mind? Is that because people are ordering long tail items and they're having to use all these other delivery vehicles, or are some of those boxes because they're vendor fulfilled inventory or or uh, uh, you know things like that? It, you know, people ask me these kinds of questions. I don't know all of the inner workings of how things function, but I can only surmise. So uh, there is a, uh, a you know, significant amount of merchandise that's sold on the Amazon platform that's vendor fulfilled. So if it comes in an Amazon box, then it's probably Amazon fulfilled, right? Yep. And if it's arriving by the post office and your area where you live, is being serviced primarily by Amazon logistics drivers. Chances are it's coming, the ship from location is such that it was shipped by um, another fulfillment center that was far away, where for whatever reason, the post office was used. And maybe that customer that ordered that box was not Amazon Prime, so they shipped it um, from a faraway fulfillment center and it arrived three, four or five days later. And that was the lowest cost way of getting it there. Right. And the same thing for UPS. Maybe it's coming from a location where UPS provides the best value to get it to the customer address. And remember, not everybody's Amazon Prime. So the rush to get it 
in two days is really an Amazon Prime only yep. uh, issue, right? Wait, there are people in the world that don't have Amazon Prime. No, I'm teasing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so now I do want to pivot a little bit uh, as if this kind of logistics wasn't difficult enough. Um, now there's all this demand for what to me seems like even more difficult uh, distribution, which is like all these perishable locally sourced yes. like groceries. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, what, when you, you listed off all the various types of uh, fulfillment centers in the beginning, uh, one thing we didn't talk about that my understanding is that like Amazon is likely also starting to build a lot of are these um, smaller, fresh distribution centers that are, you know, uh, located closer to customers, um, you know, with various degrees of same day service. Yeah. So the, you know, Amazon's been very slow to step up to the plate for the food side of the business, right? So what they did initially was they opened up these Prime Now hubs, and many of which had fresh capability, fresh and frozen. So these are smaller type of uh, operations that are inner city. You know, and when I say smaller, I mean like 25,000 square feet type thing. And they would be, their role in life was to, you know, pick your order for food and have it delivered to your house in say two hours. And it was never a money-making side of the business because primarily everything that's going on here is manual. So when they acquired Whole Foods and, uh, you know, they said, well, here's all, all these stores, right? We've got close to 500 stores. Let's leverage them as being miniature depots that we can depart and do home delivery. And that's really been, I think, the focus over the last few years is how to get as many of those whole food stores delivering your grocery orders as possible. And fairly recently, they, they did away with the free delivery out of Whole Foods, and they put that to $10. And rightfully so, I might add, even if you're Amazon Prime, because it does cost a huge amount of money to do a delivery of food. You might say, why? Well, food is the type of merchandise that you can't um, systematically synergize and build optimization for a day's worth of work. When someone orders their food, it usually what ends up happening, at least in the case of Amazon, is the delivery function is made in a non-refrigerated vehicle, like a car. And, a, you know, a, a flex driver might take several orders at a time and go and deliver them. And that delivery function is usually within 15 to 30 minutes of the store because you don't want your chicken breast sitting in the trunk of a car for four hours or your ice cream or anything else that could you know, cause a food safety issue. So that type of service, when you're paying somebody $25 to $40 to go deliver a handful of orders that are food, you know, oftentimes it ends up costing $7 to $11 to perform one delivery. And in the world of food, it's a 2% net margin. So you can lose your shirt quickly when you start paying for that and not charging a customer. So Amazon is still trying to figure it out. And I believe what they've decided on is a strategy here is that they will very gradually start building out the Amazon fresh stores that uh, don't require a checkout or a cashier. You know, we're into the 30s now that they're working on those. 
And as they build up more of those stores and they get more volume to layer on top of the Whole Foods network, I believe that Amazon will start to develop their own supply chain capabilities behind the scenes, meaning highly automated distribution centers strategically positioned in at least seven major markets that will feed the stores, giving Amazon the ability to buy efficiently and to distribute efficiently. And heavy-duty automation will be applied to minimize the labor cost in these buildings. And they will, over the next decade, build out a very robust supply chain, uh, similar to what Amazon, uh, sorry, Walmart did during the 1990s. When Walmart went to town, they put 46 million square feet of distribution center space up in the span of a decade. And they built out all those super centers with food capability during that same decade. And during that same decade, Walmart put over 25 companies out of business that were long, you know, long-standing regional grocery retailers. And so the next big wave or the next tsunami of competition in the food industry will be Amazon. Are they doing it now? No, they're just getting started. We haven't seen very much activity here. I think they've really pushed this one off and they've, Farmed strategic partnerships with UNFI and with Spartan Nash. But I think come 2026, we're going to start to see a lot more activity here. Yeah, it's a it's a big chunk of consumer spending. I I, I get it's lower margin and more difficult, but uh, eventually it seems like it will it'll be the the place to invest. I am curious though, do you like I often talk about like all this general merchandise as being like deliverable via a route and a lot of this perishable merchandise at least at the moment, people feel like you have to do point-to-point deliveries because you got to get the ice cream to the the homeowner um, when the homeowner can put it in the in the freezer pretty promptly. Yeah, um, and the other the other thing I think is the homeowner wants to know when you're coming. Yeah, so yeah. there's a specific it's a much more narrow time window. Exactly, right? and yeah. and pre-pandemic, all these two-income households, there were very you know the there was. A, a scarcity of, of slots when when homeowners were available and it was the same slot for everyone. Right. So it became uh, so it's really hard. Some of the people, uh, some of Amazon's competitors are experimenting with these novel, you know, uh, very small things. But like, uh, hey, let's put uh, refrigerators on customers porches and we'll deliver you know to the refrigerators or well, uh, let's get smart locks and and, you know, deliver to the consumer's home refrigerator like. I don't know. Do you, you do you imagine that Amazon's going to have to come up with some novel solution? No, no. no. Don't forget, there's all kinds of spaghetti getting thrown at the wall, and half of it's not sticking, right? Yep. So, like the idea where I'm going to let some stranger into my house to put food in my fridge, um, that's got lawsuit written all over it. I can't imagine that's going to last very long. Walmart's doing it, and they're expanding it actually. But you know, I'm going to predict that one's a dead duck. I think. When you get down to the brass tacks, and we work with quite a few retailers in the grocery sector, depending on the geography we're talking about, some of these retailers have 90% order of the orders that are ordered online or pick up at store. So um, someone will place order at 10, 11 at night and arrange to pick it up at 5 o'clock the next day after the work is over. And they like that convenience because they don't have to go in the store and waste their time. And it's on the way home. It's from their local store anyway. And 
when you think about it, 90% pick up at store, 10% deliver. That's exactly what a grocery retailer wants because that $11 delivery to the house goes away. That cost goes away. Customer likes it because they don't have to spend the money on that cost too. Start looking at the cost of Instacart and what it costs for a valet to go shop your order and deliver to your house. And after you look at the markups that are put on the product that no one really knows about because they're not looking at the fine print, after you pay for the delivery fee, the tip, et cetera, it's not uncommon that a $100 order is now $125 to $130 coming out of your pocket. Had you gone to the store, it would have been 100 And that business model will be what comes under fire as more and more people tune into that cost increase. I think Amazon's proposition on the home delivery side will, with the you know increase of these Amazon Fresh stores and the Whole Foods stores, I think they're going to try to go uh, to the pickup at store model as well. More stores, more opportunity for that, less expense. And they'll also try to get more efficient with scale at doing the home delivery model, right? Because it requires scale. It really does. And if you really want to do it right, you go with refrigerated trucks. That's what Kroger's doing. So now you can send a driver out for a day's worth of work with a refrigerated truck with appointment schedules and all of that done. And, then, and now you've got, you know, a uniform driver and a logo on the outside of the vehicle. And it's far more professional than, you know, some flex driver showing up at your front door. So there's lots yeah, of things going on. There's even people playing with the robots to get on the sidewalk to do the, to do the delivery of the order. Um, you know, like Wakeford in New York is doing that. And we'll see whether or not any of these things. Um, and, you know, I, I've always been doubt, doubtful that a single robot that might cost $40,000 is is a good way to spend your money to go and deliver one order. Now, and if you're doing 10,000 orders a day, well, now you need 10,000 of these robots. Is that a good way to spend your capital? You know, probably not. So I, and that's why drones never took off either, right? How are you going to do 7 million packages a year? With drones, you just can't, right? You're gonna need you're gonna need billions of drones to to make that happen. It's just it's not realistic. Yeah. Um, let's pivot a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the future. So you've given us a really good good lay of the land of of and even some future that they're you know they're increasingly investing in these things. One of the things I've kind of long predicted. You mentioned the last mile is maybe like a buck and change to deliver something. Do you think Amazon will eventually just compete with FedEx and UPS where I'll just throw some packages on my door? Like let's say I'm going to ship Jason a new microphone. I'll just put it on my front porch, address it to Jason. And when Amazon comes, they'll pick that up and take it to him for, you know, $3 or something. It's a question I get quite asked quite often. And I always start out by explaining, you know, Amazon is a business that, um, there are days during Q4 where they, on, you know, on a, quite a few days in that fourth quarter, the volume they ship relative to an average day is 2x. Mm-hmm. So like a fulfillment center that does a half a million units on an average day is doing a million units output on a, on a busy day or a peak day. And the same thing goes for the delivery stations, right? You might have a delivery station doing 50,000 packages, now doing 100,000 on a peak day. So during that fourth quarter, the whole company stressed with trying to get all these resources to work longer hours, you know, huge amounts of overtime and everybody's tired and there isn't any fat in the system to be able to take on 
additional nice to have volume to try to subsidize your business. Mm-hmm. You're just got every pair of boots on the ground trying to manage your own customers and your own needs. So how do you set something up where logistics is a service during Q1 through Q3 when you have a lot of slack in the system, quite frankly, uh, but not Q4? Well, one way you could do that is all your 3P partners, you could extend an offering to them and say, look, you're, we're already business partners. We'll do your deliveries for you during Q1 through Q3, but not during Q4. And if they're small mom and pops, and they're going to get a significant cost break because of that, they'll jump on board. And now you've got that additional volume that you need during Q1 through Q3 to help finance or subsidize your own logistics operations. And indeed, that opportunity is readily available today. And I think that's the first port of call. Q4, on the other hand, they might just turn that tap off and say, we don't need the revenue. What we really need is every boot on the ground to support our own business. Um, if you're a serious shipper, and by that I mean you spend 5 to $10 million a year on parcel freight, what happens is the people like FedEx and UPS, that first thing in the new year, they come into your place and they say, look, we want your business. Uh, you give us a commitment for the $10 million in volume and we'll take the whole thing and we'll give you a nice juicy discount. So it's not something that you can carve up by quarter. You commit at the beginning of the year to doing $10 million of shipping volume. They give you an X percent discount in exchange for that. And you stay the whole year with that one partner. So this logistics as a service concept is, is really something that you have to be careful with because it's a great idea for the first three quarters, but not for the last one. And it's not like AWS, which is a commodity that you can sell to everybody. It's something that requires lots of lots of vehicles, delivery stations, rotation centers, drivers. There's real resources that are needed to make this happen. And you can't put a peak on top of a peak because that Q4 peak that's happening at Amazon is happening everywhere else in the B2C world as well. So I think they'll become a competitor to FedEx and UPS, and I think they'll primarily compete in the B2C space delivering to consumers because that's what they're good at. They're not trying to do the deliveries that, you know, it's 50 packages of delivery at a business. I'm not trying to do that work. That's still going to be the domain of UPS and FedEx. But I see this competition really being something that will probably wind down towards that uh, fourth quarter of the year. Interesting. Yeah. The um, So we've seen an enormous amount of venture investing in GoPuff. And what are these companies called, Jason? There's some cool name that you yeah, you guys use. Like ultra fast delivery, ultra fast delivery. You, yeah, the gorilla and all those guys. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like um, they're going to? They have a better system than Amazon, or do you think that they're foolishly going to crash into the 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 rocks, the Amazon rocks? Yeah, I think the, I think that's what's going to happen. I think yeah. all of those, especially the fifteen minute guys, I think they're all going to burn out and die. Venture capital money is going their way, of course, but I, you know. If anything to do with food requires volume and scale, and you're not going to make money and find resources that are going to um, stick around for the long run in this big worker economy of 15-minute deliveries where you're constantly under stress, that that's just a, a recipe for disaster. I wouldn't put a nickel into that myself. Um, the go-puffs of the world, we'll see. You know, I'll, I'll hold off on that one. They've got 500 of these fulfillment centers, they call them, but they're tiny kiosks really at the end of the day. And, you know, it's a huge cost model to operate that way. And I I honestly think um, 
you know, this is all exciting and new, but when the expectation to make a profit starts to um, become a reality, I think a lot of these guys are going to go away. Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of a correlated question where, so you, you talked about, you know, some of the Amazon numbers you were putting out there, you know, you said they're going to add, um, you know, 122 sorts and more, you know, another 161 delivery stations. Where, where does this stop? And, and you also mentioned the wagon wheel where they're actually starting to get out into pretty loosely populated areas is, is there a point in time where we're done? Like, and when is it? Well, here's an interesting soundbite for you. You know, when we add up all the square feet that Amazon added in the U.S. in 2021, including the mezzanines, and across all building types, it came to about 136.6 million square feet. Okay. Keep in mind, the entire Walmart network that took 49 years to build totals up to about 150 million. So we're talking about a company during COVID conditions when it's impossible to get lead times that are decent and suppliers to do the work on site, et cetera. These guys built almost, almost an entire Amazon just in the U.S. Oh, sorry, an, an entire a Walmart just in the U.S., okay, mm-hmm. um, in one year. And when you look at what they're on schedule to build in 2022, 148 million more square feet will be added in 2022. And that's the size of the Walmart network that's been built out over the last 50 years. So. This thing isn't going to slow down anytime soon, even though in the last quarter they announced that they're going to take a breather. Now, you know, when you when you hear that, what that means is the number of new facility announcements that we would normally expect to happen this time of year is down, way down compared to last year. So that means 2023, 2024. I would fully expect this peak to start really slowing down, at least on the fulfillment center side. The logistics side, they've probably got another 750 to 800 buildings to put up between now and the next five years in order to get true coast-to-coast coverage across all zip codes. They may change direction and decide not to do that, but if they do decide to do that, there's a good 800 more buildings they have to put up. that are delivery stations and sortation centers and air hubs and the like. And that's a heck of an output of energy. And, but I would say within the next five years, we should expect that this engine will start to mature. And it's going, the growth of warehouse uh, space for Amazon is directly correlated to the product sales growth that you see on their quarterly statements. So if sales go up by 10%, they're going to need 10% more space, at least from a fulfillment center perspective. All of the logistics buildings are more geographically driven. So the question is, you know, how much more will e-commerce grow over the next five years relative to what we know today? That's a hard one to answer. I see that in the U.S., you know, our expectation is 10% growth this year in 2022, slowing down to probably eight, six and 4% over the next several years. So I think the growth in just e-commerce in general uh, combined with this mature network that they've already got um, combined with the fact that, I mean, you can only build so many of these anyway, right? Yeah. Does it doesn't make sense to put up a $300 million building in a town of 200,000. Probably not. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's better to ship the product further than to spend all that capex and on a small town or a smaller town. So these these things lead me to believe that we're gonna we're we're hitting the top of the bell curve and we're heading down the other side. Got it. Mark, uh, this has been great. Uh, this, this does kind of trigger one last question that uh, um, I maybe should have started with. Uh, so you you kind of have uh, in a different field, but the same job I have. I, I jokingly tell people my job is to unsuccessfully help other retailers compete with Amazon. Um, and you, you've, you've just painted like a pretty impressive picture of, of uh, like how daunting – uh, the the advantage Amazon has and how far ahead of everyone they are. Um, you mentioned you work with a lot of other retailers. Like at, at the highest level, I, I assume it can't be your advice to anyone that they should try to catch up, right? Like is is the is the answer to like find some white space that's an alternative approach to to brute forcing this? Like what what do you tell other retailers that engage you? Well, no one. It needs me to tell them that they can't compete against Amazon. I mean, this is a history in the making, right? We've never seen anything like this in modern, in the history of modern man. The speed, the sheer speed at which this has happened. I mean, I can remember going to trade shows not that long ago when people were saying, yeah, but they'll never make any money. <laughs> and, you know, poo-pooing Amazon as low, they're going to be extinct in no time. And, you know, what's happened since the mid nineties till today in a relatively short period of time has been devastating to the retail industry, to shopping malls, to every aspect of retail that you could possibly imagine. And it's going to continue to happen. And so you can't say to a company, go out and um, become better at e-commerce than Amazon is because that's a losing battle. I think you just have to understand Going back to basics, you know, what made you great in the first place? Don't try to become a five-hour delivery firm because you're not going to get there without huge costs. And, you know, kind of brings us to Shopify and, and how much money will Shopify end up spending in order to get to two-day, next day, and all the rest of it. Well, if they've determined that two-day is what they absolutely need to be competitive, um, you know, go and build your six or eight fulfillment centers, however many that's going to end up being. Go and put those in place, either with a third-party logistics partner or through your own resources, and then stop. And stop at two-day because there's no point in trying to be next day. That just gets way too expensive. And then focus on your core values, right? Why does Shopify exist with a high degree of success and growth? It's because... They offer something that Amazon doesn't offer, right? And it has nothing to do with the consumer. It has everything to do with the vendor. And uh, and same thing with Wayfair. You know, a lot of folks ask me, you know, what about Wayfair? Well, Wayfair has a fantastic product offering, right? I mean, they, the customers shop on the Wayfair site for the products that are sold there, not because Wayfair can deliver within the same day. Uh, so don't even try to become an Amazon. Try to do the best you can with the resources you have, but... Um, you know, focus on what makes you great in the first place. Well, Mark, that is uh, great advice, and that is going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all of our listeners' allotted time, uh, but this was an amazing conversation. Really appreciate your time. Uh, if uh, listeners enjoyed this show, we sure would appreciate it if you jump on iTunes and give us that five star review. 
Mark, we really appreciate you taking time um, to share your deep knowledge of of Amazon's infrastructure. If folks are interested in um, reaching out to you, maybe maybe you've piqued their interest to help them figure out some stuff. Uh, What's the best way for them to reach you or read what you write online? Our website, mwpvl.com. Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 